have your Bibles, go ahead and flip that direction. Uh, Book of Jonah. Last week we started with Jonah chapter 1, and today we're to Jonah chapter 2. Now, I'm certain that most people in this room know the story of Jonah because of what we're going to talk about today. The most famous, one of the most famous stories in all of scripture, the story of Jonah and the great big fish. But before we jump into chapter 2, what I want to do is I want to do a quick review of chapter one, okay? Just in case you weren't here last week, I know you probably know the story, but just to kind of help us see chapter two in context, let's kind of run back through it. So Jonah one, remember God comes to Jonah, he's a prophet, and he says, hey Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites and tell them about what's about to happen. God's gonna destroy them, go warn them. And what does Jonah do whenever God tells Jonah to go and tell the Ninevites? Jonah stands up, and he packs his bags, and he heads to Tarshish. He goes in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. But God, in his mercy, was not done yet with Jonah. He didn't just let him off the hook. He didn't let him go on his way. As a matter of fact, that would have been the most awful thing for Jonah, was to just be allowed to do what he wanted to do. No, God sent a storm after Jonah, Jonah goes down, he gets on a boat, he starts to sail, and all of a sudden, the storm hits, and the sailors and the captain come to Jonah, and they're going, man, this storm is not any normal storm. There's something special about this storm. Jonah, what's going on? So they pepper Jonah with questions, and Jonah answers, and finally, Jonah says, you know what? The only way to fix this problem is to throw me over the edge. Now, a lot of scholars argue, was Jonah's response, throw me over the edge, they argue, was this uh, Jonah acting in the interest of the sailors? He wanted to save them. Or was this Jonah uh, actually going, you know what, I've had enough, I don't want to face God, just toss me over, I'll drown and die, I'm done with this. We don't know. I don't think we'll ever know what Jonah's motives were until we get to heaven and we get to hear from Jonah. But regardless, the sailors finally agree and they throw Jonah into the stormy waters. The sea becomes silent and the sailors respond in faith to God. They look at him and they recognize who he is and how he saved them. And the mercy that Jonah wanted to keep for God's people. Jonah didn't want God's mercy to go to the Ninevites. But God in his mercy uses all of these things to allow his mercy to fall on people that Jonah didn't want to get it. So Jonah, as far as we know, is sinking to his watery grave towards the bottom of the ocean to die. Now, when we look at the book of Jonah, one of the two of the major themes that we see in this book are God's sovereignty and God's mercy. And we're going to cover those basically the next two weeks. Every every week we talk about Jonah, we're going to talk about mercy and sovereignty. Uh, We're going to see him again today. So what I want to do now is I want to pick up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, That's the very last chapter, or very last verse of chapter 1. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 2, 10. And then I'm going to pray and we'll jump into it, okay? Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little book. Thank you for these four chapters and a chance to study it. Spirit of God, I ask that you would now come and do spirit work. That you would empower the preaching of your word. That you would take the next 30 to 40 minutes. And Father, that you would work in our hearts and minds to show us the goodness of who you are, to show us your mercy towards us. Father, breathe life into dead bones and lead us all into repentance. God, may you glorify yourself. May you grow your church in adoration and affection for who you are. God, do this for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I started and I pointed out that it's important when we study the scriptures to recognize what the genre of literature is. We talked about how Jonah is what's called a didactic narrative, and you'd have to go, we'll have to go back to understand that, I'm going to unpack it now. Now, Jonah, the book is a didactic narrative until you come to chapter two. Chapter two is a psalm. It's a psalm in the middle of a story that's teaching us something. Now, why in the world would there be a psalm in the middle of a story? I don't know about you, uh, but there's been times in my life, usually better times uh, than bad times, but you encounter a beautiful sunrise. You encounter a beautiful sunset. And when you encounter that, like, and I'm not, I'm not talking like just, oh, that's pretty, but like a stunningly gorgeous, life-moving, altering sunrise. When you hit that point in life, you tend to just stop and you don't know what to say or do. And so kind of like your only response is to sing for a minute. You just, you're just enamored by the glory and the beauty of something. So your response is just to stop and sing. Or, or maybe life is so crushed and you don't know how to respond. So what do you do? You stop and sing. So, so Jonah chapter two is that. Jonah chapter two, we're, we're in the middle of this story, right? If we're just sitting here reading one through four, you're in the middle of this story about this guy who just got thrown over a boat and the sea stopped right? And and all of a sudden, there's a song. So what Jonah is doing in Jonah 2, what God's doing in Jonah chapter 2 is he's causing us to stop for a minute, to stop and to pull our head out of the story and to look around and to see God's sovereignty, to see how God is sovereignly moving towards Jonah to save him. So church, that should give us great hope. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to stop for a minute. We're going to pull our head out of the story and dive into Jonah 2, and we're going to stop and see God sovereignly moving to save us. And that brings us to our main point. Our main thing to walk away today is this. God sovereignly works to save those who have run away. God sovereignly works to save those who have run far away. Okay, there's two observations. When we read Jonah 1 through Jonah chapter 2, Jonah kind of like works his way down to the bottom, 
of the ocean. And then he kind of comes back out and then he does it again. He kind of dives back down. So it's kind of hard to try and delineate that, but we're going to make two observations and we're going to kind of walk through this, this passage a couple different times, looking at different aspects and different things. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to see the places that sin leads. That's what Jonah does in the belly here. Uh, We know Jonah has heard God's call. We know he's run away from it. And in the process of this, Jonah's sinking to the depths. And the first thing we see is where his sin has led him to. Now, where is Jonah? In Jonah 2, he's in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. And who's he with? Nobody. Listen to some of the words that he uses. I called out. My distress. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. I am driven away. I went down. See, Jonah is all alone. Jonah's all alone. He's in isolation. Church, that is exactly what Satan wants for his people. Satan wants to isolate you because when he isolates you, then he can pick you off. So we've been, uh, Walker's been watching some National Geographic videos at our house. Uh, And one of the ones that was on pretty recently was one about pumas. Remember the one about pumas, Bubba? And they were down in South America, I think. uh, And there was this mama cat uh, and she had three babies, and she, there's, there's no daddy cat. Daddy's abandoned them. It's just the mom taking care of three kids. So mama goes on a hunt. She goes to find, she finds these like antelope deer looking critters. I don't know what they were. They were weird looking. Uh, and she goes, and there's a whole herd of them on the mountainside. And mama puma cat, uh, we'll just call her mama cat. She, mama cat just is, is watching this herd, and she's paying attention. You know what she's looking for? She's looking for the one that is weak, maybe sick, maybe not quite as big as the other ones. And what happens is, is the herd starts to move and the weak one starts to fall off to the side a little bit. And once the weak one kind of falls off to the side a little bit and the herd's moved on, what what does mama cat do? She pounces, right? She chases it down, she kills it, she eats it. When we walk through life alone, we're easier to pick off. Satan would tempt you, try you, and push you towards isolation so that he can kill you. You've heard it said here on numerous occasions that a lone ranger Christian is an oxymoron. It is not anywhere in the scriptures. Jonah, at the very beginning of Jonah 1, says, I don't want to have anything to do with God's call or God's mission or God's people. And so Jonah leaves. He isolates himself from the rest of the community of God's people. That's what Jonah's doing. That's exactly what Satan would have us do. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, two things. The first thing it means is plug into biblical community. Not just any community, but community that helps you lift your eyes and heart to the one who holds all things in his hands. You need a group of people who are willing to love you and support you so that way when you get stuck in a hospital for two weeks with a new baby, they're there to pray for you and care for you and love you and listen to you and bring you things if you need them. You need a group of people to support you, to encourage you. You need people to hold you accountable to the life that God has called you to live. You need people to help you do all these one another's that are in the New Testament. And here's the thing, not only do you need it, but they need you. The church needs you. When God saved you, what he saved you from was isolation. He saved you from the sin of isolating yourself and then he placed you into his body. So be a part of what you're a part of. Plug in to community. Now, here at Liberty, how do we do that? 
What, there, there's, what's the practical ways for us to do that? Well, come to Sunday school in the mornings. Go to Sunday night small group. Go to Wednesday night small group. If you're an adult, you should be in one of those three things. That's how you connect with the people of God at Liberty. If you're kids, be a part of Kids Zone. Students, go to youth group on Wednesday nights. Plug into one of those avenues. Do it for your good and for ours. We, we need you as much as you need us. The second thing that this means for us, and I think this is one that, that Liberty's not bad at, is look for lone rangers. Look for those people who tend to just kind of drift. They just kind of step off to the side, and you know what, hey, I'll come to church this week, but I'm not going to go for the rest of the month. Or I'll, I'll connect every once in a while, but I'm really not going to plug in and be a part of it. When you see that person, that's usually a sign of something going on that needs to be cared for. Somebody that needs to be chased after. Somebody that needs to be loved and cared for and listened to, held accountable. When you see it, run towards it. So sin leads us, it led Jonah into isolation. But it also had an emotional toll on Jonah. Jonah, verse two, I called out to the Lord, how? Out of my distress. Think for a minute how Jonah's feeling, right? He has just been uh, tossed over the edge of the boat so that he could die drowning in the next few minutes. When all along, all of a sudden, something comes up and swallows him. Can you imagine how, what, like, what, what's going through your mind in that moment, right? Like, I'm just gonna jump in the water and drown and die. Wait a minute, now all of a sudden I'm in the belly of a fish. Jonah is distressed. He's rejected God's call and he knows it. He's put other people in danger and he knows it. And now he's at the bottom of the ocean being eaten. It's exactly what he deserved. We watched, actually we had the Little Rascals on this morning at our house before we came to church, right? One of God's greatest movies. Uh, Little Rascals was on and if you'll remember Alfalfa, Alfalfa is charged with a task. What's his task? He is to stand and guard the car so that the two honorary boys don't steal the car, right? What's their names? Buzz and, uh, what was it? No, not Buzz? Okay, I don't remember. So the two honorary boys don't steal the car, right? So, so that's, that's Alfalfa's job, but Alfalfa is in love. And he goes to the carnival to sing and to declare his undying love for, what's her name? Darla, thank you. I'm not good with names when I'm in front of people. So, so Darla, he goes to sing, and what happens whenever the car, whenever he leaves to go sing a song, all of a sudden, the two honorary boys steal the car. Woohoo! they're gonna go win the race now. Alfalfa gets uh, shanghaied by his buddies, and they finally go, where's the car? And Alfalfa and the boys go to look. Well, I left it right here. All of a sudden, they realize the car's gone. How is Alfalfa feel in that moment? He is clearly distressed, distressed and probably a little bit despondent, doesn't know what to do. How does he move forward? He's resigned. He's resigned to, oh no, what is going to happen to me? So, so Jonah, in Jonah chapter two, he's distressed, uh, he's isolated, and, and next he's also got to be, I didn't have a better word other than he's resigned. He's resigned to his fate. This is what I've earned, this is what I get. Jonah chapter two, verses three and four. For you, O God, cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the sea and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then Jonah said, I am driven away from your sight. So Jonah now knows he's earned God's wrath. He's receiving the just reward of what he's had coming to him. And he wanted, 
away from God's sight. He wanted away from God's people, and now he's got it. He's landed where he wanted to be, right? He's distressed. He's resigned to his fate. He's despondent. He can't move forward. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You see, Jonah wasn't okay with what God wanted. Jonah was concerned with what he wanted. I've heard it said before that uh, we tend to worship either the trinity of me or the trinity of thee. It's either my wants, my needs, or my desires, or it's God's wants. And where was Jonah? Jonah was living for his own wants, what he thought was best, for his own needs, for his own desires. That's what concerned Jonah. If that's what concerns Jonah, what concerns you? What are you living for? If, if we pulled out your calendar for a minute and we looked at how you spent your time, what would your calendar declare what you live for? What would your checkbook declare what you live for? Are you living for your wants and your needs and your desires? Or are you living for something greater than yourself? Jonah was isolated. He was distressed. He was resigned. He was despondent, but ultimately where does Jonah's sin lead him? Verse two, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse five, the waters closed in over me to take my life. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Verse six, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This language is all the language of death. It's all the language of death. Sheol was understood to be the place where the wicked remained until final judgment. The prospect of being abandoned to Sheol would have been the worst thing for Jonah. At that point, when he reached Sheol, when he reached the bottom of the depths, he would have been separated from God without hope for redemption. The deep of the sea was thought to be the place where Sheol was, at the bottom of the ocean. And once you got there, the bars would close in upon you forever. Jonah's just telling the story of what's going on. Those in Sheol were beyond mercy. In fact, once they reached their place, they would have received their just reward. Now, we stand on this side of the book of Jonah, right? We stand on this side and we know that Jonah is actually not without hope. There is still a chance for him because we have the rest of the book to go. And we're going to look at that here in just a second. But before we do that, one of the things as I was studying this that came to my mind was Romans chapter 1. One of the ways we know that Jonah isn't beyond mercy is what Paul tells us in Romans 1, 24 and 25. He says, therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. You see, what Paul is doing in Romans is he's showing those who are beyond God's mercy. The scariest thing for us in life is to actually get what we want when it comes to playing with sin. What would it have meant for God to say to Jonah, if that's what you want, go have it, buddy. You want Tarshish? See ya. That would have been terrifying. If God had given Jonah what he wanted, where is Jonah's chance of redemption? Sin is enticing. It looks and feels good. Satan, the deceiver, the tempter, makes sin look a heck of a lot more fun than what God wants. But where does sin always lead? 
and always leads to death. So what do you do? What do you do in that moment? How do we respond when sin is knocking at the door and you want it? I want to give in. I want to taste that sin. What do we do? What does Jonah do? Jonah has obviously recognized the seriousness of his situation, right? He says, I am driven away in verse four. He says, I went down. His sin has led him to this place and he's fully aware of it, but he's not without hope. Why? He says, when my life was fainting away, verse seven, when my life was fainting away, what'd he do? I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Do you know what God continually tells the people in the Old Testament to do? Remember. 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 Why? Why are we to stop and remember? Because when we remember, we remember the goodness of God. We remember a God who delivers his people. We remember a God who makes a way. We remember a God of promises who keeps them. When we remember God and his promises, we can move forward with hope. See, Jonah remembered the same God that he was running away from. He remembered the same God who wanted to offer mercy to the Ninevites, these wicked, God-hating people. And he remembered, man, if God's willing to offer mercy to them, maybe he's willing to offer mercy to me. So Jonah remembered, and then he cried out. I called out to the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah remembered the sovereign God who in his mercy sent a storm. And in his mercy, placed him on a boat with a captain and a sailor who would show him what faithfulness looked like in praying and asking for help and deliverance. God, in his mercy, sent a fish. And God, in his mercy, sits in his holy temple, saving those who have run as far from him as they think they can possibly get. Jonah, in a near-death experience, remembers and cries out to God, save me. What about you? Maybe God in his mercy has sent a storm in your life. Maybe you can feel the waves of life crashing in on and around you because you've run from him. Yeah, maybe it wasn't a call as crazy as going to Nineveh. Maybe it was just to repent and believe. Maybe the spirit of God this morning is pressing on you to stop, remember, and cry out. Like there's not some fancy prayer you have to pray to be saved. What, what does Jonah pray? We actually don't know. All we know is he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, save me. That's all you have to cry out. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his to give. He's the only one capable of doing it. Your best efforts don't get you there. When you work hard, you're like a bunch of sailors in the midst of a storm trying to row back to the ocean or back to the shore. Do they ever get there? No. Your best efforts fall short. Cry out to the Lord. Now, what makes this whole thing amazing? Is it the fish? And the fish is cool. The fish is really cool. We're going to talk about the fish. The fish is amazing. What makes this whole thing amazing is that God was working to save Jonah before Jonah was ever even close to being ready to repent. You see, the thing that we see in Jonah 2, and actually all what we've seen up Jonah 1 to Jonah 2, is the second point. Our second observation is the Lord's sovereign salvation. 
We see the Lord's sovereign salvation. Now, I've been teaching a Sunday school class. Mark took over the past couple weeks. I think we're going to wrap it up next week on evangelism. And one of the books that I was reading in preparation for this, uh, one of the authors talked about this thing called pre-evangelism. Actually, never used this term in our class. Pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism is what goes into having a conversation with someone and earning their trust to be able to actually evangelize. And well, if that's pre-evangelism, what's evangelism? Evangelism is the point which you actually share the gospel and say, are you willing to repent and believe? That's evangelism. Pre-evangelism is everything that goes into building up to that. And that's, that's really what Sunday school is about, was focusing on that. It's the conversation, the friendship building part of evangelism. Um, I, I've, heard it say, I've heard it said before that discipleship happens before salvation. So it's discipleship. It's just saying, man, let me show you what Jesus is like. Let me be Jesus to you. Let me love you, hear you, care for you. That's what pre-evangelism is. Now look back at Jonah for a minute. Think about Jonah. Jonah didn't cry out to God till he was in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the ocean near death. But when did God move? When did God move towards Jonah? What was the pre-evangelism stage for Jonah, if you want to put it that way? It's back in chapter one. It was the minute that Jonah said, I don't have anything to do with this. God moved towards Jonah the minute Jonah ran away. And we've already talked about God's mercy through chapter one, but look, at, look with me to verse 17 for a second of chapter one. And the Lord appointed. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Have you ever tried to train a fish? Anybody? No? I know, uh, I know we got, uh, let's see, Danny's not here today. Danny's known for being a good dog trainer, right? Like Danny can train dogs. Um, let's see, Seth, you train pigs for pig showing. I, I, can, I can relate to that. I can kind of understand some of that. I'm not good, don't claim to be good at any of that. But training a fish, sit, roll over, jump, right? Can you, can you like, how do you do that? God in his sovereignty appoints a fish to be at the exact right place in the exact right ocean on the planet at the exact right time with the exact right person to swallow. God was sovereignly working to save Jonah and it had nothing to do with Jonah or what he had done or who he was. It was purely by God's mercy and grace. Jonah, God moved towards Jonah before Jonah even knew it. It took Jonah a while to recognize, right? He had to be thrown over the edge of a boat. He had to be sinking to the depths. He had to be swallowed by a fish before he finally had a chance to stop and understand God's mercy. Jonah was too wrapped up in his rebellion to see it. Where has God sovereignly been working in your life, but you've been too wrapped up in your own circumstances to see it? That's the beauty of a psalm in the middle of a narrative is it forces you to stop and to pull your head out and see where is God moving? What is he doing in your life now? When was the last time you looked around and saw God's sovereign good hand on your life? Isn't that a little bit of what Sundays are for? Isn't that why you're here today? Isn't that kind of why we do this on a Sunday morning is to stop and to reflect, is to think and remember, to remind us what God has saved us from and what he has saved us for. His church, the people want another. He's called us on a mission. Isn't that what we do here this morning? So for just a second, stop. Just stop. Think about your last seven days. 
Where was God sovereignly moving in your life? What was God sovereignly doing for your good? So God sovereignly sends a fish to save Jonah. But why a fish? Why did he send a fish? I mean, couldn't we have done like a, a lifeboat or something? I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I guess in an ocean, a fish seems appropriate. I don't know why God sent a fish. But what's the point of the fish? Well, this fish is a place that forced Jonah to stop. It forces him to learn about the mercy and grace of God. Um, it helps him to, to stop and see how God has, has been kindly moving towards him. Uh, the fish also shows Jonah that God has wrath towards sin. Right? Jonah's not totally left off the hook. He gets thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a fish. There is some consequences for him. But ultimately, the fish serves as a shelter from the storm and a vehicle for salvation. It was the way God saved Jonah, and even in a way, is the way God saved the Ninevites. But ultimately, what the fish does for us in Jonah 2 is it points us forward. It helps us see something ahead of us. Take your Bibles real quick and flip over to the book of Matthew. All right? Keep a, keep a finger in Jonah. We'll come back to Jonah 2 in a second, I hope. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. This is, this is where Jonah 2 gets good. Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. For the queen of the south will rise up to the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is the sign of Jonah? See, Jesus, he takes this chapter and says, something's going on here. What is the sign of Jonah and the fish? He says, this sign is a picture of something much greater to come. And we've walked through Jonah 2. When Jonah 2, we saw that sin led to isolation, right? Jonah was all alone. What greater isolation has there ever been than when Jesus was on the cross? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As one commentator noted on this, although Jesus was forsaken, the Father and the Holy Spirit were no mere spectators at the crucifixion. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Spirit and the Father were at work in offering up Jesus to be crucified. Hebrews 9.14, through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself unblemished to God. The Spirit offered himself. 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, we read, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the word to himself in Christ. There has never been and never will be a greater sense of abandonment or isolation than what Jesus went through on the cross. What Jonah experienced in Jonah 2 was a picture of what Jesus experienced on the cross. But what Jonah experienced in part, Jesus experienced in full. You see, Jesus took on the isolation our sin deserved so we could know the nearness of God. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, 
Hallelujah. What a savior. So what does this mean for you? This means for those of you that feel all alone, you're not. You're not alone in feeling that way and you're not alone. See, God the Father in his mercy sent his son who, unlike Jonah, did respond to God's call. He did go to a wicked people. He did call, he did respond and follow his father's call perfectly. He didn't stray even for a second. Yet he was mocked and scorned and betrayed by those he came to save. He was crucified on a cross. Sure, he had thieves hanging on either side of him. There was a group of people there. But Jesus hung alone for you and for me. So Jesus feels what we feel in our isolation on a level that we don't ever have to know. Jonah 2 shows us that in the whale, Jonah was distressed and under anguish. But Jesus, with drops of blood, prayed to his father that this cup would pass from him. See, Jonah was later spit out of the whale. He didn't have to bear the full brunt of his sin, right? He goes down to the depths of Sheol, but he doesn't actually get there. Jesus drank the cup. He walked through abandonment and denial by those closest to him. The language of Jonah 2 that we looked out, you cast me out, your waves and your billows passed over me, actually was experienced by Jesus. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. The waves and billows of God's wrath was brought down on Jesus so it didn't have to fall on us. Jesus knew isolation. He knew distress, but ultimately, what did Jesus know? He knew death. Jonah didn't die in Jonah 2. Jonah went down to Joppa. Jonah went down to get on a boat. Jonah went down into the boat during the storm. And in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, he went down to the bottom of the ocean nearing Sheol. Yet in Jonah 2.10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You see, Jesus went down to earth and then went to a cross to experience death. And then he went to a tomb so that three days later, he wasn't vomited out. He walked out as a conqueror over the grave. Jesus wasn't spit out of the fish. He went to Sheol. He experienced death and he overcame. Jonah was a type. He was a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Hallelujah. What a savior. So what do we do with this? What do we do with Jonah chapter two? Flip back to Jonah two. Told you, don't take your finger out of it quite yet. The first thing we do is what we've already talked about. You recognize your sin. You recognize your sin and the state that it's put you in, where it has left you. And you cry out to God for salvation. Because Paul gives us a promise in Romans chapter 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then Jonah chapter two, verses eight and nine. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. You respond, the second thing we do is we respond with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, Jonah concludes his psalm with a warning before he gives his sacrifice of thanksgiving. His warning is for those 
who pay regard to vain idols. Vain idols is literally translated empty things. When you look for your heart to be satisfied by empty things, you forsake the steadfast love that the Father would have for you. So how do you know? How do you know if you are looking to empty things to satisfy you, to sustain you, to bring you joy? The question that I come up with is, what are you afraid of losing? When all of life is stripped away, when every prop facade that project our sense of happiness, everything that brings us satisfaction, when all that is taken away, what are you left with? Are you crushed? Are you despondent? You can't move forward. Are you resigned to your fate? Or can you say, Christ is all I have and Christ is all I need? What are you chasing after? What are the empty things you're finding salvation in? So Jonah warns us, don't pay regard to empty things because they are empty. They leave you standing there. But then in verse nine, he says, I offer up a, thank- a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now that's kind of an interesting phrase, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I don't know what you think of when you think of a sacrifice of thanksgiving. With thanksgiving be around the corner, I tend to think of the extra hole on my belt that I will sacrifice after Thanksgiving. But for Jonah, a sacrifice would have been a costly thing. For him to go back to the temple would have taken time. That would have been a costly journey. He would have had to buy a perfect unblemished lamb. He would have had to gone through a process of being purified and sanctified so he could present it as an offering. It would have been costly. But for us, it's a little different. We don't offer animal sacrifices because there's no temple to which we run. Christ has fulfilled the law of sacrifice. Instead, we're living sacrifices. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, in response to our salvation, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice. We produce good works that cause us to sacrifice our time, our talent, and our treasures, our energy, and our money, and maybe even worldly approval. But when we remember how great our salvation is, when we remember the mercy of God in moving towards us before we ever begin to respond to him, It's a natural response. We don't do, we don't do what J.I. Packer warns of. We don't slight the Bible or the gospel of Jesus Christ by an attitude of casualness towards either. We're not just casual towards this thing. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. It's what we do every once in a while. No, we live a life of sacrifice, of thanksgiving for a God who sacrificed his son for us to know him and be near him. We count our blessings. We remember God and his mercy. And it's an outflow of our understanding of who God is. Church, Jonah ran from God. He ran from God's call on him. He didn't appreciate God's mercy towards a wicked people. And he ended up finding that he was as wicked as the rest of them. He was just like those Ninevites. Jonah was inconsistent at the beginning. He wanted mercy for himself, but not for others. But God was the same from beginning to end. Mercy for Jonah, mercy for Nineveh, mercy for us. 
He offered mercy to Ninevites. He's offering it to Jonah. Jonah ended up sinking to the end of himself. He came near death. But this time, this vessel of salvation showed him that sin leads to isolation, depression, despondency, and ultimately death. But where was God in all of this? Sovereignly working for his salvation. He was working before Jonah ever realized what was going on. He sent a fish to save Jonah, but that fish pointed to something much greater. He sent his son to save you and me. So church, the question for today is how will you respond? What will you do with this? Will you recognize your sin? Will you remember who God is and will you repent and turn away? Will you continue to chase after the empty things of this world? Will you live for the trinity of me or the trinity of thee? Or will you live in a posture of gratitude, one of thanksgiving and a position of obedience that says, yes, Lord, wherever you call me to go, I will go because of what you have done for me. Jonah ran from God, but God in his sovereign mercy moved towards Jonah. Where is he moving in you today? Church, let's respond in prayer and then in song. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a sovereign God who despite our running away has brought us here now to hear the gospel of peace and the gospel of grace for us. God, you didn't leave us to ourselves. You didn't abandon us in the depths. God, you moved. And God, you're still moving. God, even now, here in our midst, you're moving. And so, Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit's power, would help us to respond appropriately, humbly, to the God who has saved us. Father, thank you for offering redemption through your son. Thank you for experiencing the things that we should have experienced, but to their fullness, so that we could walk in nearness to you. God, you are worthy of worship and praise and adoration. Be with us in Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and sing.